Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 197, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. The CDC has offered mass guidance for schools in the fall, but each state seems to have their own reaction. And the Education Department has overhauled the Teach Grant program, and there's a hidden nugget in there that just may help rural areas. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, can you measure curiosity and creativity? Some MIT researchers on today's show say yes. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? Happy summer. I am rested. I have relaxed. I'm rejuvenated, and I'm fired up about the new school year. You know, we usually talk for about five minutes before we start recording, before every episode, and I will tell you this. You seem more relaxed than I've ever talked to you, at least in a year, year and a half. Do you feel that way? For sure. I do. I really do. I put some things into perspective. And, you know, when you just feel uh, clear, uh, we last school year was unlike any year in my 23 years of experience. And, you know, we made it. Um, Was it perfect? Absolutely not. Did we accomplish everything we wanted to? Of course not. But we made it and we kept children safe and we did our best to teach them. And, you know, I'm just I'm I would say a lot of people would say you're closing that chapter with that school year ending, but we're not closing it. We're going to extend it, um, you know, with this new school year and putting some new practices in place. And I just really feel good about moving forward, um, not just as a school district, um, but but as a state with trying to educate our children. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You talk about kind of moving forward and we kind of put that chapter behind us. But um, we are going to continue to talk a little bit about the uh, new CDC guidelines that just came down uh, a few days ago. And gosh, I I don't know how to react to them. First, we have to emphasize the fact that they are guidelines, so they're not rules. But I feel like depending on where you live, you have another political tightrope to walk as a school leader with these new guidelines. And basically what it says is if if you're vaccinated, you no longer have to wear a mask um, in school. Uh, However, of course, everyone under 12 can't be vaccinated. And then, of course, it's like, how do you know if people are vaccinated? And Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to see how this is going to play from location to location. What are your thoughts? Well, I will tell you that I have had a few teachers ask me about our return to school plan. And, you know, I had to remind them where it was located on the uh, district website and help people get familiar with it. But I also shared that personally, I am going to wear a mask in and out of schools. You're talking about different environments and interacting with students and teachers and administrators. And so I'm not going to just do it for myself. I'm going to do it more so for them. I am vaccinated. Um, I've been tested multiple times. Um, I know there's the Delta variant variant that is out and worrying everyone, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's my personal preference. I will say that our district's plan is that we encourage um, students to wear masks, but we're not going to enforce a mask policy. 
um, you know, and, and that's going to be different. I'm sure that's going to have some, some staff members a little bit nervous, but at the end of the day, they have the right and the opportunity to get vaccinated and they have the right and the opportunity to wear a mask every day to protect themselves. Yeah. It's interesting to see that California schools are kind of going against the guidance and being more strict than what the guidance is. They say they're still going to require masks for fall okay. classes next year. Uh, but then you have the complete opposite where I think in Texas, uh, the governor was saying that um, you can't make a rule uh, to force masks. Even school districts can't make that rule. Um, you know, you know? <laughs> that guy there is hilarious anyway, but but um, I will tell you that many schools had already put out their guidance um, of not enforcing um, mass policies even before the new guidance from CDC. But I mean, all you can do is do what's best for yourself, um, practice sanitary you know, practices within your classrooms. I will say that districts are going to keep a lot of other procedures in place to ensure that buildings are cleaned and disinfected and sanitized regularly. And that's good to know. Um, and I'm also pretty sure that school districts looked at a lot of other transitional type um, things to consider when, um, you know, children are moving about in the building and how to handle lunch and just all of those things. But I think our biggest concern is going to be those schools in the north. So many school districts didn't attend school. Mm -hmm. I mean, nearly the entire year, whereas most of us in the south, we were in school, even if it was, you know, a hybrid model. So right. I just think that our perspective and our view on returning to school is a lot different than those who are completely against their district's decisions or their, their local government and trying to return to school for the first time if they didn't attend at all or if they went back, you know, maybe the last three months of the school year. So it's a big deal in many places. I think, you know, like where we live, um, I have a daughter that's going to be headed into first grade. And she, of course, uh, is not vaccinated because she's not old enough to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so according to the CDC guidelines, she should wear masks to class. I do not think our particular school is going to ask them to do that. I just feel like Correct. in the political area that we're in, uh, they're not ready to take on that blowback of making the youngest children wear the mask. Um, so I, I would like to see districts if we well, start if I'm to not mistaken, they're not requiring it district wide. Right. Right. And, and that according to their guidelines, I think it was very much if you were vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask is, is what I understood. Um, but those younger kids, I think yeah. they, they weren't requiring yeah. it. And well, uh, I'll be thinking about your sweet girl as she enter, enters first grade. I will tell you, um, my son is, is going to be a senior and um, he is vaccinated. And so a lot of my worries um, have gone away, but I still mm -hmm. have had those conversations with him about, you know, being careful um, about sharing things and about, um, you know, trying to be sanitary and clean because he's an athlete. He's in a locker room with lots of other people and just interacting with his friends when he's out and about. But I am glad that he's vaccinated and I, you know, hope and pray that there aren't any uh, adverse effects later in life from it. Right. I am cautiously optimistic that, um, you know, here we are dealing, like you said, with the Delta variant and we have, um, we live in a place where our state is only 31% vaccinated. So mm -hmm. if we start to see spikes, I um, hope that districts will step up and say, hey, we need to wear masks for a little while because here's what we're seeing. Here's what our data is showing us. Um, so uh, help us out and stick with us and do this while we know we're in this trying time. So we'll just kind of have to wait and see how that plays out. Um, I think uh, most people probably saw in the news this past week, there's 
basically five under-vaccinated clusters that uh, governments are worried about that put the United States most at risk. Most of those are in the South. It looks like um, one pocket is Southern Missouri, Northern Arkansas. The other is North Mississippi, North Alabama, Southern Tennessee. You've got a pocket over kind of in the uh, Florida panhandle. Heavily populated areas. Yeah, yeah. Georgia into Alabama, uh, North Louisiana into Texas, and then much of Texas, um, especially in that panhandle region. Yep. So it's... uh, those are kind of the areas that we're most concerned about, and um, we'll kind of see how things play out. I just, again, I hate to see so much pressure for these tough decisions to be put on the school district. I would like to see our leaders kind of help set a more strict agenda with what we should do, but it's just too political of an issue, and that doesn't seem to be taking place. Right, right. And I get that. However, when I think about um, it just depends on where you live and the, and the, and the students and the, you know who you're serving – because I do believe that some district leaders would think completely opposite for some, from some others. So mm-hmm. I kind of like that the districts um, have to make decisions on their own. I wish there was a little bit more guidance, not necessarily directives. Yes, that's that's all good point. Um, so another story I wanted to bring up was one that we've been kind of covering on the show over the years. Uh, it's popped up two or three times. And, and that goes back to that um, TEACH grant. Uh, that's the program where yeah. um, you know teachers can... Uh, pledge to serve a, a needed low-income community for four years, mm-hmm. and then they can get help with um, college pay. Um, if That's long forgiveness. Yeah. Right, exactly. And then apparently a few years ago, it was the uh, GAO, along with NPR investigation that kind of followed up afterwards, that showed all the trouble and the unnecessary hoops that teachers were having to deal with in terms of getting mm-hmm. their grants covered. Um, I was one of those people and I never got it covered and I've served in nothing but title one schools. Wait, so you're saying you are, you still haven't been paid like basically. Nope. No. And it's not necessarily even being paid It's having your loans forgiven. And no, my loans have not been forgiven. Wow. And now that I'm not a classroom teacher, I'm not even eligible <laughs> to go. And you can't retroactively Kind of go hadn't, back and, I hadn't been able to, and it was completely shut down under the last administration. Right. So they were uh, allegedly trying to work on it, and apparently those rules went into effect in early July. I think it was July 1. Um, and with the old rules, if a teacher did not submit annual paperwork on time documenting their teaching service in a qualified school, their teach grants were automatically converted into loans rather than grants. And then they also had to be paid with interest. And that was kind of like, I think, a oh, big wow. – th- that was kind of considered like these unnecessary hoops that teachers were required to do. And now um, the new regulations say that teachers will no longer have their grants automatically converted to loans if they fail to submit annual certification paperwork. Instead, with eight years to make good on a four-year teacher requirement, teachers won't have their grants converted to loans until completion of the required service is no longer feasible. So That's awesome. Yeah, that's a plus. And then there's another little nugget in here that I really like living in somewhat of a rural area. They have also expanded the scope of the program to include not only low-income communities, but also high need rural areas where recruiting yes. and retaining teachers can be mm-hmm. difficult. So I think that's yeah. uh, could be a good thing as well. It is. I mean, first of all, let's just talk about, you know, this, this national teacher shortage, it, it's hurting. I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many school districts right now with school starting for some in less than three weeks that still have vacancies. And so these are some of the things that we can use to help attract people, not just to, um, you know, apply to our school districts, but coming out of high school to consider studying education. Um, we know those numbers have dwindled in the College of Eds, and um, that that is something that uh, we need to use that. 
Let's talk about the shortage. And again, I know you are looking at it as one small sample, but we were talking about a teacher shortage pre-pandemic, and there's no doubt the pandemic couldn't have been great for recruitment. <laughs> and I worry about you know exactly. what type of long-term effects that may have two, three, four years down the road. But I mean, what are you seeing right now? Is it the same as it was before the pandemic and trying to find teachers, or does it seem worse right now? I would say probably the numbers are about the same. However, the efforts are more difficult. We did lose some teachers to the profession. Um, teaching in a pandemic was extremely stressful, especially for those areas that kind of, you know, made a lot of changes, adjusting and, and changing along the way. Um, school districts that struggled with outbreaks that couldn't keep it together. I mean, a lot of different things. And then, of course, personal issues related to the pandemic um, impacted our teachers alike. And so, I do think that it's much more difficult now. It's we've talked about this before, kind of like a buyer's market. Right. It's a teacher's market at this point. Um, they know districts are struggling and so they can just about pick and choose where they want to serve. Um, and it does make recruiting efforts um, much, much, much harder. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, um, some semi good news. I think teacher pay in Mississippi is up a little bit after a couple of different bills. A little passed. bit, about eleven hundred dollars. Right. So I think it's about thirty seven thousand dollars is the starting salary. I want to say um, right around there, which yeah. is you know, it, it sounds a whole lot better than twenty seven. <laughs> right. We can do better, but it's we could. It's a step in the right direction, I guess. But it is. Uh, but definitely we we can do better there. Um, so, uh, all good news though on the, uh, teach grant front and, uh, we'll have to see how the things play out with this CDC mask. Uh, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. Our guests in today's bright idea segment are two MIT researchers that are developing a new way to measure students' growth. Louisa Rosenheck is a designer and researcher, and YJ Kim is a project director at the MIT Office of Open Learning, and they are creating a way to measure outcomes of things that are difficult but important to measure, like curiosity and critical thinking. Louisa and YJ, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am hello. <laughs> hello, hello. I am very excited to have you guys on because this is a complex, but it's also a very important topic, and you guys seem to be making some headway here. Uh, so the first question I really have for you is: When did you realize or, or identify that there really wasn't a great way established to measure things like curiosity and critical thinking and, and whatever else you're measuring here? So there has been many, many years of uh, attempt and effort by assessment scientists to come up with a better way ways of measuring, we call hard to measure constructs, things like creativity and curiosity. So we're not the first per, uh, people who actually start thinking about it. And I think everybody recognized that those are the kind of things that we care about uh, for the future generation, but oftentimes it's not really emphasized or fosters in, in the school education system. So before I joined MIT, I uh, work on the, the uh, area of game-based game -based assessment uh, and the work was really trying to figure out using games and simulations to measure things like creativity and persistence. Uh, so that was really the origin of this whole playful assessment work. Uh, and when we started talking to teachers more about it, and we quickly realized that teachers, you know, they do want to measure, do they do want to assess, they do want to foster those skills, but they often feel like, but at the end of the day, we have to do standardized testing. So that kind of frustration that, that is more informed by, you know, teachers and, um, you know, school leaders are telling us, like, these are kind of things that we really want to teach and foster better. 
But we also recognize that assessment is really kind of the barrier for doing so. Uh, and from my point of view, um, I've been working in learning games and educational technology for many years. Um, and it's always been clear that the, the things we really care about teaching and the skills we really want to build in our games and exploratory kinds of experiences are not the things that are measured um, typically in schools, either on standardized tests or on you know regular assessments, quizzes, tests, and other kinds of things that teachers create themselves. Uh, so that's always been a frustration. But I never uh, really had an interest in assessment until about a year ago, I started working with YJ. Um, and she kind of opened my eyes to the idea that assessment doesn't have to be what we all think it is. The way we all see it right now, it actually could be so much more and so much more playful and a better fit with games and the kinds of learning that we want these days. Um, so together, we've, we've kind of brought together these different perspectives um, with the goal of actually creating tools that kind of fit with both, both rigorous assessment and playful learning. When I say you guys are focused on measuring things like curiosity and critical thinking, am I playing it down too small or, or are we hitting the nail on the head there? Is that like specifically what you're looking for or is it things beyond that? Those are one of the constructs that we're looking at. So broadly speaking, kind of things you want to measure are so-called 21st century skills, although we don't really like that terminology, are things that are so important to be productive uh, in this, you know, creative uh, economy and the economy of ever-changing technology. Uh, yet, if you go to schools, we all learn about content and less about those skills. So those kind of skills that we think is very important for the future and the future workforce that are really not emphasized in current school education system. And also going beyond just, you know, some, some measure of creativity or of curiosity or anything like that and looking more deeply at what are, you know, for example, communication is such an important skill, but what does that mean? What are the different kinds of communication? You could be good at some and not good at others. You don't necessarily have to be good at, at all of them. But a lot of this playful assessment work is about recognizing the different ways that there are to be good at these constructs, to build skills in these areas, and helping learners themselves even recognize what what are they good at, what would they like to improve on, and how can they tell whether they're getting better at those things. Right. And so you, you both have used this term, playful assessments, or, or just playful in general. Why dub it that? The reason why we the, play, the notion of playfulness is really important is if you think about playground, Everybody who comes to playground, right? They're all equal players and they share, they have fun and everybody participate in the process of play. And I think the current practices and when we, when we think about assessment is something that is given to students and they don't really have any saying in how they're assessed and what they're assessed on and what purposes. So really our ultimate goal of this playful assessment work is that can we uh we imagine the the power kind of dynamic or what assessment really means uh, just beyond something that students are passively taking. And, you know, they're active participants, active producers, uh, also teachers as active participants, active producers in the process and, you know, creating the opportunities for students to be more empowered and creating opportunities for teachers to be more empowered in the process of assessment as well. Can you give me an example of what this looks like in the classroom, an actual playful assessment? So one example um, 
is this game-based assessment we've been developing. It's called Shadow Spec. Uh, it looks like a fun uh, puzzle. Uh, like you rotate, you know, shapes and figures in the environment. Uh, but it measures not only uh, students' mathematics uh, content standards, because we're aligning that with Common Core standards, but it also measures spatial reasoning, creativity, and persistence. How those things are measured is because we're using a lot of process data that is logged uh, through the gameplay. So things you click, things that you move, things you rotated in the environment. And we're using all those we call features to build uh, uh, models that are embedded in the game itself to be able to make inferences based on the process of solving problems in the puzzles. So when you present that game to, say, a group of students or, or one student at a time, is the mm-hmm. goal so they don't realize they're being assessed and they're just enjoying the process? So, yeah, there's this idea called stealth assessment, um, which certainly has its merits. Um, there are great things about it, and that is pretty much what you're describing. You, you play a game, you're not worried about being assessed, you're not worried about how you're doing, you're, you're just playing, and in the background, it's collecting data and, and running it through some assessment machinery to um, come up with measures of how you're doing on different, different constructs. Um, and that is, that is one thing that we are working on, but, um, a lot of our, at the same time and in, and more so in our maker assessment project, um, we are really focusing on bringing the learner in and having them be fully aware that they are engaging in assessment, that they're being assessed, that they're also assessing themselves and helping to assess their peers, that it's really, a it's not something to be scared of. It's not something to worry about. It's just a mindset. Assessment is a way of life, kind of. It's, it's you know, a way to always be um, just monitoring your progress and thinking, okay, what did I do there? What, what could I have done better? What am I going to try next time? What's important to me about what I'm doing? You know, what am I getting out of this? And kind of encouraging each other, recognizing your group members, other people in your class for, for accomplishments that they're making that maybe they couldn't have done the week before. Um, so I often like to design things that are more in that, in that vein versus stealth assessment, um, because I think there's so much to gain out of students understanding that they're being assessed and why they're being assessed and why it matters. Um, there's no reason why they should, there's no reason why we should keep it a secret in many cases. How do you guys envision this being scaled? Um, and what I mean by that, how do you envision it being used in the classroom? And, and do you do you envision it, you know, just starting off small and kind of testing it in different classrooms around the country? Or do you envision multiple districts adopting this? Different kinds of projects will scale eventually in different ways. I mean, with all of them right now, we're, we're just piloting um, kind of on the, in a school by school level. But down the road, I mean, the technology tools, like a game-based assessment, that where the technology does a lot of the interpreting of the data, that in some ways, it's easier to think about how that would scale, um, because you could roll it out in a lot of classrooms. Um, and the teacher would, of course, have to have some data literacy to understand, you know, what, what is being, what information is being given to them, how to use the feedback. Um, but the technology does a lot of that interpreting, whereas with the um, kind of paper-based playful objects to, to assess with, um, it's different in that it's definitely a lower barrier to entry. You just download some stuff, get some ideas and, you know, try it out with paper and materials. 
Um, but there's a bit more of a leap there for, okay, now what, how do I make sense of all this data, of all this information that students have generated? How do I take that and turn it into something that's actionable or shareable or that tells a story? Uh, and very skilled teachers are, are already doing that. They are doing that quite naturally. Uh, and so part of our, our goals with playful assessment is to make it easier for, for more teachers to kind of think that way and understand how to do that and understand that it's, it's not as time consuming as they might think that it is actually doable for a class of 30 kids. Are these tools or, or games and resources, are they available for anyone now? Or is there a way they, they have to work with you guys to get access to them? So for the embedded assessment uh, in making, uh, that it was a project funded by a National Science Foundation. Uh, so right now, teachers who are participating in the research study are implementing in their own context and we're collecting data. And based on that, we're going to iterate the tools one more time, and then we're going to make them available uh, through Maker at uh, website and the network. So our goal is really putting out there. Uh, we're getting really close, uh, but there is work that needs to be done before uh, you know we make everything available for teachers. But at first, at, at first, it'll just be a demo because this is we're still in very early stages of development. Um, but we are also uh, inviting teachers to join a pilot that we'll be starting in the next month or two. Um, and we can post the links in the show notes for, you know, how to sign up for that, how to get in touch with us, um, how to stay tuned for, for more information. We are, we are really excited to find more teachers that, you know, want to work with us and want to try things out and give us feedback. So um, we definitely are, are kind of building up our communication channels keep an eye out for that i certainly want to get the uh the link that you mentioned that we could put in the show notes for if people are interested in trying to to sign up um for that that sounds fantastic so mm-hmm. don't let me forget that the article i was reading on ed surge about what you guys are doing there was a big section on the meta rubric and i hadn't really mm-hmm. heard you guys dive into that yet is that is that an important part of what you're doing yeah i would say that um that was one of the first things that we created um, when we were kind of starting to think about, you know, what is it, what is it that we are going to focus on an assessment? Where do we think that we can really have an impact and what are the needs? So meta rubric is, um, a playful learning experience for teachers. It doesn't have to be only for teachers, but it, it is mostly targeted at teachers. Um, and I won't, I won't give you too many details about exactly what the activity is like, but it's played in groups and, um, it, it encourages, teachers to have a lot of discussion and debate about what they value in a piece of student work. Um, and kind of, they have to reconcile what, what are they, what do they, are they compelled to measure at first with what really matters to them? And when they create a rubric, they kind of then have to have to evaluate the rubric itself and see, okay, did, did this actually measure the things I care about? And is it, is it possible to use it? And can I have other people use it? So it's, um, it's an experience that's not going to teach teachers specifically how to design a good rubric, but it uh, will expand their thinking about what a rubric can be and um, what considerations they should keep in mind when they when they design rubrics for creative work and open-ended projects with their students. I'm not in academia, so I don't know what really motivates folks in that world, but but what's the end game for you? What? How do you know, like, we did this, we made it, we pulled this <laughs> off? Like, w- at what point do you get there? For me, when I hear teachers get excited about it, like, like I, I was 
very frustrated with my own work for years, uh, you know, because like, oh, great. Like we develop awesome assessment systems. Great. Like it has certain, you know, psychometric qualities. Okay. How many teachers are using it? Uh, so when, you know, we start ex- more exper- experimenting with this playful assessment and, you know, when we hear feedback from teachers, even, you know, very simple, you know, paper-based tools, that really makes me very happy. And I really believe that our work can eventually really change how people think about assessment in school system. And honestly, like I have two kids and they talk about how anxious they are when they take these quizzes and tests. And I really hope that in 20 years or so, kids don't need to feel that way about assessment. So that's for me in game. Yeah. And for me, I would say um, quite similar things that, you know, when, when teachers see our ideas and our tools and they get excited and think, oh, this is something I can really use or, oh, this fits with what I, the way I think assessment should be done. And I didn't know this was an actual thing. Or when teachers see, see this stuff and they think, oh, now I get what you're saying. Okay, maybe I can give this a try. You know, so things, anything that we can do to move the needle on teachers' practice, making their assessments more, um, their assessment strategies more varied and more playful and, and just making their assessments more student-centered, you know, really giving students agency um, and valuing what students are doing. That's, that's the key thing. And so I think... This is a much more long-term goal, but I know YJ and I both agree that why one reason why assessments are so important and why it's it means so much to us to be able to measure these important, hard-to-measure constructs is because our school system is so focused on assessments that the way it is, things are not going to be taught. They're not going to be you know given priority if we can't assess them. So if we can find ways and not just tools, but mindsets, ways of thinking um, that can kind of show everybody how we can value these skills, then we then teachers can finally focus more on those and, and validate what students are doing and celebrate the wonderful projects that students are making that are meaningful to them. Um, and they can really spend time with those things that, and we want society to value these things as well. So I think we hope that our, our assessment methods will will help everyone value the things that are becoming clearer to be more and more important. Do you, are you guys at all motivated by the fact that maybe there's students out there who are who are overlooked because the standardized tests, the typical tests we give, don't capture oh, the, the things mm-hmm. that that you guys are capturing? Yeah, exactly. I think that ties right into what we what we each said about you know test anxiety. I mean, a lot of kids are very smart, but they just they don't do well in high pressure situations or they don't do well with these specific formats of tests that involve so much reading or, you know, whatever it may be. And um, also what I was saying about really valuing what students bring and what their passions are um, so much that students that, that youth can do and are motivated to do is not valued because it's not what's taught or measured in schools. So yeah, I definitely hope that by, by, you know, if we can get more people in the communities to, to value what's, what students can do and what's going on and motivate 
and they can motivate themselves and see their own progress that it can everyone can support each other in this way. Uh, well, Louisa and YJ, I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. And I think there's probably a lot of teachers out there that will appreciate it as well. So you guys keep up the, uh, the great work. Are you both ready to take our playful assessment or pop quiz? Yes, ready. I don't, I don't Since know. Since web pop quiz it is playful. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's probably not going to meet the standards be. that you guys are used to, but but we'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> all right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Exploration. Because that should be a subject. Exploration of? Of the world. Of the world. Okay. It's great. Yeah. I think that's the first time we've ever had that answer. <laughs> I think if there's one, if they can only, if they're only going to have one subject, it should really be figuring out how the world works and following their passion. I, I was going to say a very similar thing. I would say uh, following or discovering your own passion and getting to know who you are. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Might be the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> how to be a good citizen and a productive community member and work, work well with the rest of your community. I think there's way too much focus on individual achievements and knowing, you know, accumulating knowledge. And there should be more focus on just, you know, kind of life skills and working with people and and um, social, emotional, soft skills, all those kind of things. I would say lifelong learning skills, like how you can continue to teach yourself and continue to enjoy learning and continue to grow uh, in and outside of schools and beyond uh, whatever school time you have to go. <laughs> what does every child deserve? I say freedom to explore and freedom to enjoy learning. And to be recognized for their strengths. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Assessment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, building, building more play into their curriculum. Accountability. Assessment-based accountability. What's the best gift to give an educator? A gift card. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, time. The gift of time. Yeah, a gift of time and recognition. I think most most teachers, certainly all good teachers, they, they're not lacking for ideas of how to help their students and initiatives that they could try. But there's just so much involved in teaching that isn't the actual guiding of students that if there's any way to give teachers more time to explore and experiment and try new things. I also say kind of room to mess around, kind of room to explore space uh, for goofing around a little bit and try new things. Uh, I think that's something we should definitely give to teachers. Which teacher changed your life? Like from as like as a student the uh, one you had? It could be as a student or maybe in the professional world, either or. Um, in fifth grade, my I had, I had a teacher named Mike Zito. And I don't remember that much of specific things that he did, but I, I remember having a, a real relationship with him. I felt like he knew me and he appreciated me for, you know, who I was, not just for the, the tests that I took and things like that. And he was very creative, and he also taught me to juggle. <laughs> to literally juggle, like juggle balls. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. I didn't even know that. That's yeah. fun. I grew up in South Korea, so I didn't really have <laughs> good teachers. 
Okay. Aww. Well, you seem to be doing very well now, though, despite that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, or or because of it. Yeah, right. It, because of that, I think it's because of that. Yes. Um, and last question: pen or pencil? Pencil. Colorful markers, of course. There you go. All right, Louisa and YJ, again, we really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we just think it's incredible, all the great work that you guys are doing over at MIT. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. We look forward to connecting with teachers who are listeners. Oh, and one last quick question. Is there a website that people should go to just to kind of keep up with this project? Do you guys post, do you blog about it or you post about it anywhere? We have website and we also tweet a lot about our work. So oh, okay, like, following okay. us on Twitter is one good way. And a lot of teachers out there use Twitter a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the URL right now, there's tsl.mit.edu slash playful assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that that page is probably going to be changing. So best, best to just um, look at the links that we'll give you for the show notes. What's the uh, Twitter handle that folks should follow? It's at yjkimchee, yjkimchee. And mine is Skip to My Louisa. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.